Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another episode in Series 2 of A Stab in the Dark, the UK TV podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama, that extracts their DNA, sends it off to the lab, then gets the results back stupidly quickly, because who the hell wants to listen to a podcast that lasts several days? My name's Mark Billingham, and today in our incident room, I'm very excited to say that I'm joined by two of the biggest names in the worlds of both crime fiction and TV crime drama, multi-award-winning American crime writer Laura Lippmann, and the man behind what many regard as the greatest television series of all time in any genre. Obviously, I'm not including Supermarket Sweep in that list because it's untouchable. I'm talking about The Wire and its creator, David Simon. I'll be talking to Laura and David about their work, their time as reporters on the Baltimore Sun, and looking closely at the topic of truth versus fiction. We'll discuss Laura's most recent novel, Wild Lake, David's latest TV project, and as always, we'll be asking both of them for their recommendations for a good read and a good watch. So draw up a comfy chair, make sure you're wearing loose-fitting clothing with your favourite alcoholic beverage slash snack slash drug of choice to hand, and sit back and relax. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Welcome, Laura and David. Um, It's great that you found time to join us while you're over here. Now, let's get this out there straight off the bat, full disclosure, because some people may not know, but you're married to each other, I should add. Um, Now, I'll I'll try not to mention the N-word again, but I do happen to know that John Waters officiated at your wedding, which is just about the coolest thing I've ever heard about. How did that come about? I think that's David's story to tell, because David would have had the connection to John through the fact that you've both used the same casting person who is also John's best friend of all time somebody he talks yeah, to well, every day we use the same crew yeah. in Baltimore for all those shows in Baltimore and uh, and his casting director and his art director and uh, I knew that he had married he was a, a he's a member of the Universal Life Church whatever mm-hmm. the, the back of the comic book church that you know hey I'm a Universal Life minister that's now that's right you, so. she's, she's married somebody off this church what? How easy is it? Do you just buy a license? Is yeah, it, like, it really is. It's, it's really like becoming like a plastic surgeon you, or something. It's, there's it's a website, and, and it tells you how to do it depending on where you're going to perform the ceremony. And you send in your paperwork and your check, and then you are no um, theology entitled required. to no theology perform required. marriages. And I think in every state in the United States you can do this. But he's done like 15, 16 marriages. And I only believe one he of them did 18, has... and only one is broken up. 18, okay. So he's got a good record. And, yeah. and we're not the one that's broken. Okay, so. but was it, was it a kind of water-esque wedding? I mean, no, that... he took it very seriously. He, he thought about the vows. Uh, it, it, was, um, it was very gracefully done. Yeah, he does take it very seriously. I used him as a role model when I performed a wedding for the first time. And he let me give him input on the vows. And it was just John, David, and me, and David's son. And we got married on a bright blue day in October and then we went downstairs and ate cupcakes and gossiped about the movie Hairspray, which was currently in production. That's he had right. just seen John Travolta in a fat suit for the first time. Yeah, to to film about. his scenes, his Edna, and yeah, he, he's also. And we he, have no 
photographic record of it because while we did take photographs uh, of ourselves and with mm-hmm. John and with my son, uh, our house was broken into like about a month later and I hadn't downloaded oh, the digital camera. Yeah. So the, it is lost, you have lost to it. the ages. Like Hank Williams did. <laughs> Hank Williams had his wedding twice and charged, charged people to go both times. You should have restaged it. Um, now, what I do want to talk to you both about, obviously, in some detail, uh, are your amazing careers. Laura, you've written well over 20 novels, over 20 novels. David, you've worked on at least eight critically acclaimed TV series with another one on the way. But you both cut your teeth reporting at the Baltimore Sun. Is that where you first met? Yes. I knew her. I knew her dad before I knew her. Okay. My father worked at the paper too. So um, yes, we met because David spilled coffee all over my desk. Oh, that's a, that's a uh, we auspicious start. We met cute. You met cute. <laughs> oh, let me get that. Oh, all that kind of no, stuff. No, she wasn't in. It was a week. I had a weekend shift, and I I went back to one of the back desks to write. You want to be away from the metro editor because he's bothering you. You know, you don't want to assign something new while you're working on your story. So I was hiding at Laura's desk. I uh, didn't know Laura very well. Um, and uh, I knocked over a cup of coffee on your blotter all over your calendar. Mm-hmm. And uh, I cleaned, cleaned it up, but of course it was, everything was stained. And uh, I came in, I guess, on the Monday or the Tuesday. Well, I, I did some detective work, and I said, who was sitting at my desk? Who is Mr. Clumsy? <laughs> who is that? And I asked you to give me a signed copy of Homicide. That's right. That was the, that was the penance. So this is what late eighties, nineties, uh, busy busy time in that paper, I should imagine. Nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety one. Oh, nineteen ninety one, probably. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. A lot going on in Baltimore. Yeah, we're married to different people. Right, it, we're not married t- to each other. Uh, no, at the time I wasn't married to anybody, but I would go on and and. Oh, you got uh, married after that. Yeah, Sorry. I had That's some I had was. some mistakes to make, and then I circled back to you. <laughs> and I'm, I should imagine that some of the people you met during this time on the streets, in courtrooms and stuff, a lot of them have made their way into some of the different stories you've both told in various ways for me yeah yeah definitely definitely um those years were a big influence on the kind of stories that i write about baltimore and you both made the jump uh again in various ways from journalism to telling different kinds of stories who made the jump first uh you did yeah. david you did by a lot and was that a was that a, a a big jump to make a scary jump to make um it, it well i mean it was going without a salary uh, you know, I mean, I guess I, I was going to make money off books uh, or if, as long as the television show Homicide lasted, which I didn't think would be very long. I didn't take television seriously. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, there was something from going from this product where they threw 250,000 of them on doorsteps every morning and you didn't have to worry about your distro, you know? Mm-hmm. No matter what happens, you write a story, you don't write a story, a story's good, story's bad, they deliver the same number of newspapers every morning to, oh wait, the product is either good or it's not and I'm actually in an open market. So there was there was a moment of, of, of sort of a gulping sound. A moment. Yeah, a moment. <laughs> and then things turned out okay. <laughs> I mean, David really is like the most accidental television showrunner that I know of, which is not to say that I know that many, I certainly haven't met that many, but I'm sort of more aware of the industry than I used to be. And typically, whenever I read a profile of someone who's attained success in a certain area, and they say, you know, I didn't really start out to do this, and this is what I really cared the most about, I scoff at it. But in David's case, it was kind of true. I mean, in his heart of hearts, he still retains a lot of the old newspapermen. I mean, I like, 
literally we have left diners and seen smoke on the horizon and David wants to like go after the fire and chase it down like he's going to call it into the rewrite desk. I don't have this As if I still know who the rewrite man yeah, is. Like, right. like we could get it, through on the line. Right. Is that Lynn there? <laughs> what do you mean he retired? What's it, you know? But yeah, you. it was really interesting because it was not what you were trying to do. You wanted to write books and you wanted to... And be affiliated with a newspaper. Be a journalist. And... and, yeah. and you fell into producing the corner because basically Tom Fontana said to you, you know how to do this, go off and do it by yourself. Yeah, I mean, the, the last time I saw Tom, I actually said to him, I said, you ruined a perfectly good newspaper group. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what about the jump you made, Laura? Was, was the crime genre for you an easy fit? Was, it, was that not a, not a big jump? It was a really natural fit. I didn't spend as much time as a police reporter as I think some people believe I did. And, you know, it's sort of one of those things that you see about yourself and it's not exactly untrue, but I had a lot of different beats as a reporter. But I you did covered s- poverty and that's not, yeah, a bad, that's that's not a bad proving ground. But the crime, you know, the crime beat, beca- crime novels became a really natural fit when first I, I had a woman who was a bit of a mentor to me who helped me get published. And she said that women often came to fiction through the mask of genre. That they, that they felt presumptuous saying, oh, I'm going to go sit right down and write the great American novel. But if they could think about their work in genre terms, it sort of gave them permission to try. And it occurred to me that as, as widely as I read and as much as I read, what I read for pleasure tended to be crime. Huge fan of James Cain. Had read all of Raymond Chandler. Uh, discovered Ross MacDonald and then Donald Westlake. You know, had grown up reading the kind of kid mysteries in the United States, everybody talks about Nancy Drew all the time. I had no affection for Nancy Drew. I found her to be, you know, it's a kind of a sanctimonious prig. But I love this kid named Encyclopedia Brown, okay. where you solve them yourself. And what I loved is Encyclopedia Brown was the brain, but the girl was the muscle. Sally, his friend Sally was always beating up Bugs Meanie. You know, so <laughs> I, it, it was a really, na- it was a real natural fit. And I wanted to be, like, I'm the opposite of David. David, I, I can't imagine David ever sat down and said, gee, what I'd really like to be is a television producer. I wanted to be a novelist since I was six or seven years old. I thought it would be the greatest life in the world, and I think it pretty much is. So that first novel, first Tess Monaghan novel, what, 97? Right. Uh, so Tess Monaghan, uh, a, a reporter turned private investigator. And as, as has already been mentioned, your father was a renowned journalist, and, and you had... Pretty intense work ethic, it seemed to me. An awful lot of novels turned out very quickly. Was was I don't mean very quickly, but you know, you yeah, know no, co- consistently. Yeah, yeah. Was that work ethic something that was kind of instilled in you? And you know, both of you, deadline, deadline, deadline. You're both from journalistic backgrounds. Is that a, is that a? See, I think David has a genuine work ethic. I still have trouble with this because if you could bring my mother in right now for this podcast, she would laugh her head off at the idea that. Can we get I her on have, the phone? Yes. <laughs> no work ethic. <laughs> no discipline. Who are you talking? about I don't recognize this person she was the family screw up you know it's the other daughter who was far more perfect and organized and my production company's blown deadline productions <laughs> that's all you need to know about that but that that jump you made that David that gulp moment that you talked about was you wanted to write books but was there a feeling even back then that that traditional journalism was kind of dying a little bit that newspapers were dying uh, my, I mean not to get into the uh the, the who slapped John of it but um I got sort of spit out by journalism, by my newspaper, which is to say I wasn't fired or anything like that, but um, the things that my newspaper began to value were not what I valued as a reporter. Were not what, they, they weren't my ambitions. 
and the things that I valued, they had no regard for. Um, so it, it was, uh, it was, there came a moment, there came a real moment where I said, this paper's not going to get better for me, it's going to get worse. And there was a buyout on the table. It was those, it was the years before the internet when they were reducing the staffs of newspapers, not because they were under pressure from digital, but because they, Wall Street had figured out we can publish a shittier newspaper uh, and make more money than if we publish a good newspaper. So they were buying out veteran reporters. So I took a year's salary and uh, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll end up at a better newspaper. But right now, they're filming this show. They're, they're going to teach me how to write a, a teleplay. This is a good skill set. I'll learn this while I'm finishing a second book, a second nonfiction book. And then I'll go to another newspaper, a better newspaper. And um, that was the plan. And I, I still haven't gotten back to the newspaper. <laughs> but that was the plan. I mean, you I, screw I, up. I, I know. I mean, Look I at you. Inertia. <laughs> so you wrote, you, you wrote this book, Homicide, a year on the killing streets. We shadow the Baltimore Homicide Department for a, a year, best part of a year, uh, in, what's it, 88. So by the end of that year, you must have felt, you know, pretty much like a cop. You must, you, you were just, were you kind of an honorary cop? Did they, did you get, um, get all that? They sort thought of... so. Okay. I, mean, I became furniture to them. I was sort of an amusing mascot. Uh, I, the tone of it was probably, you know, there were 36 guys in that unit. Most, you know, there was one woman. So 35 guys, one woman. Very, um, you know, very smart thinking cops, but also very, you know, cops, profane, you know, hard, um, cynical. And they regarded me as sort of this uh, amusing little mouse that had been taught, tossed into a room with a bunch of cats. So they batted me around for a little while until they got bored, and then they sort of forgot I was there. Um, and the joke became, I mean, by the time we got to nine, ten months in, it was like, there's no book, you know. <laughs> it's a cookbook. He's going to write something. It's going to be cooking with Kai. He's, you know, he's taking notes for nothing. And then, then I remember when they read the uh, manuscript, they all looked at each other and said, oh, my God, you know, he was actually writing something. He was paying attention. Yeah, he was paying attention. But a year, I mean, you know, I'm sure you have, Laura. I've, I've occasionally done an overnight ride-along for a bit of research or spent a few hours here and there. You must think us fiction writers are kind of pussies by comparison in no, terms of the listen, research you, we do. You, you research what you need. <laughs> you know, I was, I was actually doing a nonfiction book. I had to have what their lives were for a year, but... I will say that, you know, the things I thought were important or meaningful after being there a month or two months or three months, a lot of that stuff didn't make the make the final cut. Um, after you're there a, a longer period of time, other themes and, and sort of more layered truths uh, make themselves evident. I mean, I understood more of what the book was about the longer I stayed. And when did, when did the first whisper that the book would become a TV show. When when did that sort of come along? Oh, I, I guess uh, you know the agent sent it out there, and uh, we got a bunch of light offers for options for films, for feature films, and uh, I didn't take any of them because it just seemed like real short money. Um, and then it it died for a while, and then somebody. Oh, actually, I had I, it was my one great idea. I remember I'm sitting on the rewrite desk, and I said to. Uh, I said to the agent handling, I said, hey, why don't you send it to Barry Levinson? He's from Baltimore. And uh, at that moment, um, we heard back, uh, I guess about three weeks later, Levinson had signed a deal with one of the networks to develop a television show. So he was the one thinking about sort of television right. rather than just a, uh, burning it off in the future. And uh, 
and that's that was like the first moment of really you know and and he i think the tv show that he wanted to do he wanted to do an hour-long drama based on diner do you know the movie Uh diner he wanted to do that and i think nbc said no to that so he was like all right i got this homicide book so that was it. But you could, you still could easily have not been involved in it. I mean, Absolutely. the story of most writers at that point is that that's where they wave bye-bye. You know? Well, they actually came to me and said, do you want to try to write the pilot? And I said, do you take me for a fool? <laughs> I don't know what I'm, you know, I have no idea what you guys do. So, you know, I hadn't been to film school. I hadn't written, I had never written so much as a, as a camp play. Um, and, and I had no sense that I should do that. So they hired uh, Paul Antanasio and he wrote a fine pilot. I did say, this is the only way I kept a hand, and I said, you know, once you have three or four scripts, if you send me those and I can work off of what the template is, I'll try to write one. And so I did write one, and it was so depressing, <laughs> so dark, um, that the network said no, and they held it. And it was only the second season when they got uh, Robin Williams to play the guest part uh, of the of the father who's... Um, the, 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 his wife is killed in front of him. He's a tourist. Uh, when they got that to happen, then they, then NBC was ready to make that show, that episode. They were not willing to do it otherwise. So I wrote something that probably shouldn't have even been filmed with, with David Mills. I mean, yeah. we, the two of us together. So you've both now you both now left the Baltimore Sun. You're both writing fiction of one of one sort or another. And I should say at this point, not been a full length Tess Monaghan novel for a few years. You haven't left her behind, right? I haven't left her behind. She last appeared in 2015. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was too clever. I gave her a kid. Writing about a private eye with a kid, a female private eye with a kid, I find it really hard. And the way I solved the problem the first time was to make it all about having a kid and being a mom. And how do you... And now I'm sort of back in that corner again and, and trying to figure it out. It's really challenging. Um, I, I've sort of... I'm not truly doing a prequel about her parents, but her parents make um, cameo appearances in the book I'm currently writing, which okay. is set in Baltimore in the 1960s. So when Tess does reappear, she's going to have like a kid at college. <laughs> <laughs> she might. Okay. She might. I don't know how to do it. I've thought a lot about it. And I've thought about... It, but I've definitely... I really love the PI form. And I feel like it's getting a little... Um, so I think it's I think it's kind of diminishing again. It's one of those genres that waxes and wanes, waxes and wanes, and it seems to need to keep reinventing itself somehow. And it was it got this huge burst of energy from writers like Sarah Paretsky, who, by the way, we figured out is David's cousin. That was what? a weird thing that re- resulted from some genealogy. Very distant cousin. David and Sarah are distantly related, which I think is hilarious. But, you know, Sarah Paretsky, Marsha Muller, Sue Grafton, when they began writing these female-centric PI stories in the 80s, it wasn't just that they brought women into the PI story. They kind of changed the PI. And suddenly there were people with connections and complicated histories and they were no longer this lone, solitary figure, the knight against the world, the Chandler-esque. And <clears throat> I think the P.I. novel needs something like that again. I don't know what it is. And I've thought a lot about sort of, I do think that there's a finite number of Tess Monaghan novels left, but I'd like to have a plan that takes me over three or four and bring it to what I consider a satisfying ending. Um, I think we all know a series that have gone on too long. Oh, yes. And and series in which, as a reader, I said, boy, that would have made a great final book. And so I'd like to be 
on top of rating and ending for a test rather than just have it sort of meander away. Oh, it's that thing, isn't it? Nobody ever says, you know, the best book in that series, number 12. You know, you <laughs> never you never hear that, do you? That's always the frightening spectre that, that, that haunts the series writer. Now, we've got loads still to talk about. Um, we haven't even started talking about The Wire or about Wild Lake. But I want to finish the first half off by asking a question that, yeah, like this has got a simple answer. But I've just wondered where, where um, fiction and reality kind of begin and end with both of you is it a case of fiction being able to tell the truth in a in a way that non-fiction can't or a different kind of truth um or is it just because stories become more powerful when they're told through characters that that readers or viewers can actually engage with speaking only for myself the thing that i love about being a novelist is i actually do know what people are thinking and i know what their true motives are when you're a reporter, no matter how deep you go, no matter how embedded you are, the interior of people's lives is shut off to you. You don't actually know what people are thinking. You know what they say they're thinking. You know what their actions are. So I like that omniscience. I like actually knowing what everybody is. What I like knowing everything about the people in my stories. Not you know knowing that I'm never being played played as a sucker by anyone. And I also like the freedom that I didn't have as a reporter that you don't necessarily have with fact-based stories to say, this is what's interesting to me right now. And so that's what I enjoy about fiction is I, you have so much more control over it. Every now and then I try to, try to do nonfiction again. It's exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting fact-checking and mm. making sure. I mean, like, I just and like, I'd rather- beings will not conform to a perfect arc. Right. The real ones. And I, and I have so little faith in people's memories now that a lot of reporting, I think I would have trouble being a reporter now because I find memory so suspect that if I didn't witness things and have great, and you did that, you like were present for almost what, 80 to 90% of everything you wrote in your two books? In the books, yeah, not in the but newspaper work. Reconstructing events from people's memories, I don't think I could do that and, and feel right about myself. Well, we'll be talking to Laura and David a lot more about truth versus fiction a little later on, discussing Laura's latest book, Wild Lake, in more depth. We'll be discussing The Wire, David's newest TV project, and I do want to find time for that in-depth analysis of Supermarket Sweep. But before then, it's that time in the show when our roving reporter goes out and about to bring you more of the best crime fiction and TV crime drama. So with that, it's over to our man with the spyglass, Paul Hirons. Paul, what have you got for us? <laughs> Well, what have I got, Mark? Now, you're obviously talking to Laura Lippman and David Simon in this episode, and I'm delighted to say that multi-award winning crime writer and contemporary of Laura and David, Megan Abbott, joins me now on the line from New York. Megan, welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Now, um, I make no bones about it, but you are one of my favourite crime writers working today. Let's get that fanboy moment out of the way first. Oh, uh, thank you. But for those who haven't read your work, can you tell some of our listeners what your stories uh, are about? Because although you've set them in kind of different eras, there is, it seems to me, some connective tissue that links them all together. Yeah, yeah. My first four books were all set in, in America of the sort of mid-century or even a little before. Um, and then my last four have all been set 
in contemporary America, primarily the suburbs, but but to me they're sort of the same. Uh, so I'm very interested in issues of, of you know you know sort of having complicated women in sort of complicated situations um, and issues of women in power and and just sort of creating more space for. I guess uh, ambiguity in female characters, which I think um, is, in some ways has been been harder for crime fiction. Uh, for so long, there weren't any real women characters, and then there were, they were, but then they were kind of perfect, you know, and that you know, maybe idealized a little. Um, so I, I try to do something that is sort of the hopefully for all of us sort of the next stage where we get to have messy, messy women. <laughs> you say you wrote "Die a Little," the song is you, Queen Pin. And bury me deep, bury me deep, which kind of were all set in those kind of forties, fifties, perhaps a little bit earlier even as well. But then you made a jump into the nineteen eighties with the end of everything. Uh, what made you make that jump? You know, it, it was I was sort of getting a little too comfortable, I suppose, in the past. And um, my first four books, you know, while they come from the heart, they they really come from uh, my love of books and movies, and so. There was a sort of safety about it, and I thought if I wrote something um, closer to my own life experience, that it might it might push me in a different territory, you know, creatively. So, so the end of everything is said in the '80s. A young girl in the '80s, and I was a young girl in the '80s. So, it was sort of, um, though the book is not autobiographical at all, it was sort of forced me to to look at stuff differently and to get a little messier with my own um, experience of life, you know, the world that I live in. And your latest book is You Will Know Me. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that came from a sort of fascination I've always had with child prodigies, and especially the families of child prodigies, um, how how sort of power operates in those families and, and how, how love works and, and, you know, what it's like for siblings. And so, so, I, uh, so it's about um, Katie, who's the mother of a gymnastics prodigy named Devin, and she and her husband are just totally committed they're like team Devin you know to, to her to her achieving her sort of Olympic dreams or whatever they might be and then something goes wrong <laughs> and, uh, and it just sort of exposes for me usually the crime is there to expose stuff that no one wants to look at you know it kind of throws into high relief everything that's really going on and it is a, a fantastic book so I urge all our listeners to go read it and now finally I just want to ask you real quick about David Simon's The Juice, which you played a role in. That's correct, isn't it? Yes, I was in the writer's room uh, for, for the first season, uh, which uh, will premiere in September. So yeah, my first uh, uh, writer's room experience. <laughs> and how was that? I mean, you had people like Lisa Lutz, George Pelicanos, Richard Price was an ex- executive producer. I mean, these are seriously big names here. How was the experience for you? It was terrifying. <laughs> um, it was. I, I knew Lisa very well, um, and had and knew you know George through the crime fiction community, and had met David a few times. I'd never met Richard, and uh, and even even you know even if I could handle you know the uh, pressure of talking with David or George or. Richard alone with all three of them in the room. It was uh, it was terrifying, but it was so, I loved the story so much. It's you know it's set in seventies Times Square. It's based on a real story. It's about the beginning of uh, 
we're not, the, you know, it's our hardcore porn. Um, but it's really about this sort of great set of low lifes, uh, prostitutes and pimps and, and bartenders. And I just, I just like all those seventies movies that I have watched my whole life. It felt like I would be able to sort of drop into that world. So I, so, so that sort of tried to, you know, I tried to overcome my fear by the enticements of the project. Well, uh, I certainly can't wait to see the juice. And as you say, it's out in September. So uh, Megan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and with that, it's back to you in the studio, Mark. Thanks, Paul. And we're back with my special guests, Laura Lippman and David Simon, here in a Stab in the Dark's interview room. Now, before the break, we'd started talking a bit about truth versus fiction. Um, and I suppose we're now living in a world where those lines have been uh, blurred considerably. As old school journalists, so you know, do actual research and stuff and check their sources, you must be fairly gobsmacked um, about what's happening now with fake news and when truth is now presented as alternative facts. I mean, it's kind of it's it's a hard thing to even satirize now, isn't it? Yeah, it's not funny. Um, I think uh, I think what's happened uh, is that uh, the lie has been put to the um, the conceit which you heard ten or eight or six years ago that there was this new democratized uh, version of the news and that everybody could be a citizen journalist and we could all go out and just uh, blog or comment our way to the truth and that the truth would out from uh, you know a, a million points of amateur light and in fact what it what, what we've left ourselves open to is 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 a is a, is a realm of absolute horseshit mm. um, that there was actually a professional ethos to journalism uh, that even though it was flawed even though it had fundamental problems that uh, it was contending with every day uh, there was an ethos there and there was there was a there was a logic to why you know i i don't value newsprint i'm not like nostalgic for the for the paper but the newsroom you know some of the most important moments i was ever involved with as a reporter involved people sitting around looking at a piece of copy and deciding it wasn't confirmed uh, we didn't have it well enough. Uh, it was missing, you know, A plus B didn't equal C because we didn't have B solid enough and hold the story and the story went and the story didn't run. There's no comparable moment in the internet where that happens. Everything is just from the moment somebody thinks it, it's thrown out there and, you know, you figure out whether it's true or not. And something has been, you know, and now I think, you know, in, in the wake of what's happened in, in the election in my country, um, you're seeing almost a revitalization uh, as if some of the mainstream media like the the Times and the Post and, and some other other places Mother Jones they've 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 reconnected with the idea of of we matter um, because where else are you going to go except somebody who's at least trying to arbitrate in some coherent way whether something's true or false they don't always get it right they often get it wrong but it's the first rough draft of an honest version and so since the election, you've actually seen almost a resurgence in the validity of, of mainstream media that probably would not have happened without, without what happened with Trump. Well, I mean, arguably, taking everything you've said, storytellers are now more important than ever, I would suggest. And the, the crime genre seems as good a genre as any to really explore what's going on. Smart storytellers. I mean, I, I get a little bit down down in the dumps sometimes about 
the certain stories that never seem to go away, the kind of escalating stakes and serial killer stories where the body count keeps going up and up and up and the sadism keeps going up and up and up. And I think the crime novel is a place to remind people that one death, one murder, one homicide is a crime against Mm -hmm. society and that it matters. It doesn't have to be into the double digits before we really start to care. I I had a review on Amazon a couple of months ago that said, and for the third book in a row, there's only one body. God, I think, like, <laughs> not you know, reading your garbage one of, again. One of my favorite um, P.I. novels of the last few years was the last book in, again, it was like, here, here are all these things lining up really neatly. I mean, this is, so Lisa Lutz had that beautiful series about the Spellman family. Mm-hmm. And she actually managed to write a P.I. novel with no murders in it. And it was the end of the series, as far as I know, and it was one of the um, most beautifully poignant books I've ever read because it was about sort of the cost to a human being who has spent their lives in this job of looking out for other people to be deceitful, to betray, you know, and like, is, this is the family business and it's it's killing me. And it's this is like really neat because now I can hand it off to David because Lisa Lutz has ended up working on The Deuce, which is yeah. David's latest show. So, um, but yeah, I, yeah, the, the, the idea that there has to be so much more murder, I'm never on trend, to, probably to my detriment. <laughs> You've I, just written a new book about it. <laughs> You've just written a new book about a boy wizard. <laughs> when I entered the field in the, in the mid 1990s, when my book was going out for submission, the first Tess Monaghan, I literally got a rejection letter that says, we have enough of, you know, funny female PIs. It was like, that's over. Women are over. <laughs> We're done with 50% of the gender. And, so yesterday. You know, I laugh because, you know, we now have, you know, we're, I think it's coming to an end, but we've been on trend with the girl. Mm-hmm. The, the girl, girl is the, the unreliable narrator. And I'm like, uh-huh. hello. Two, I mean, 2008, I wrote The Girl in the Green Raincoat, yeah, which is a total of rip. I'm, Way I'm, ahead too, of the curve, I'm either too far ahead or too far behind. I don't know what's going well, she on. She's on the train, The Girl in the Green Raincoat. <laughs> she should have been she on the train. She should have been on the train and she should have had a duplicitous <laughs> husband. She should have had a dragon she... tattoo as well. Like, <laughs> you've missed so many tricks. The when Girl you think about in the it. Green Raincoat you know, with a dragon tattoo on the train. There it is. Okay, it's a lot to fit on the jacket. I get that. but I think we're moving on to women now, like one of the next. All right, let's talk about The Wire, David. Let's talk about The Wire. Two days ago. I can't follow that. Remember this TV show you did a few years ago? 15 years ago, 15 years on Saturday. Seven of the happiest Saturday, years right? of my life. Well, does it, I mean, does it still surprise you that 15 years on, considering how many other shows you've yeah. made, that people still want to talk about The Wire? Yeah, I would have been, listen, considering what the themes of The Wire were, I'd be uh, happier um, if, if the show felt a little more anachronistic, <laughs> yeah. given the state of my, um, my country um, and my city. Um, right now, Baltimore is really struggling. Um, we've not figured uh, out this problem of two Americas, it's worse. and it's worse. It's worse. So yeah, um, uh, not a particular, um, you know. Never mind whether it's marketable. Fifteen years later, I kind of wish, uh, kind of wish we'd done better. It was an incredible ensemble show. Uh, so many memorable characters, Omar and Avon and Kima and McNulty and Stringer Bell. Were these characters to a degree based on people you'd met that you'd come across on the street, or were they all characters that emerged in the writer's room? Um, 
a, a little of both. They are based on real people, but they are usually amalgams of real people. Um, they are not singular. So um, Stringer Bell has his origins in a, in, a, in a guy named Chin Farmer, but thrown on top of Chin uh, and, and Chin's history in the drug trade. Uh, were three or four other guys, and we would take anecdotes and mangle it up, and you know, oh, this happened to Gangster Webster one time. This happened to right. to uh, to Joe Dancer. So, so we would, um, yeah. There was enough history of the Baltimore drug trade that we would steal from one guy and, and hand it to another character, and and the na- a lot of the names were real names of, uh, but they're all mixed up. It's like a surname okay. and a first name and a street name will all be mangled, and in, in a way, it was our we were throwing a little bit of homage to people who knew the history, but if you if you think you can track a character um, straight through linearly uh, to the fiction, you really can't. And talking about Stringer Bell, whatever happened to that guy, Idris, somebody or other? I don't know. Isn't he James Bond? I yeah. don't know, maybe. I was doing Panto somewhere, I think. I, I, I was asked, to t- someone said to me, are you going to take the which wire character are you quiz? I said, oh, I'm Mrs. Stringer Bell. <laughs> Now, it's, it's often been described, The Wire, as a, as a, as a novel for the screen. And I, I've often wondered, how early on was it that you took that decision to bring in novelists, Richard Price and Dennis Lehane and George Pelicanos? Was that something you were always going to do? No. Uh, well, first of all, I, you know, I mean, I didn't know that we were going to have more than one season. You know, I mean, we were writing it like, well, let's write, write the show we want to write and, you know, it's not going to have any shelf life. So there came a moment late in, uh, I think, the first six or so scripts were just myself and Ed Burns, uh, my co-writer on the, on the corner and, and the book. And, and, uh, and, um, Laura was the one who said, there's this guy, George Palacanis, and he's doing this, he's sort of mining in the same place you are, but down in Washington. And my initial reaction was, you know, Oh, Washington, (laughs) piss on that. You know? And I mean, I grew up in Washington, but like I was now I'm, you know, I, I, I was Baltimore and, you know, nothing's worse than a convert, you know. I was mm-hmm. uh, completely intolerant. And uh, and then uh, a fellow at HBO, uh, one of the uh, one of the execs there uh, who had worked on the corner with us, Carrie C- Antholis, he sent me the suite forever. And I thought that was a smart-out because I was late on scripts for Carrie, so I thought he was just making a smart-ass joke. At some point, I cracked that book on, on Laura's say-so, and I was like, you know what, I got to call this guy. This guy could write for this show. So that's how I got working with George. And then it was George who said, you know what? There's a bunch of other novelists who could really write the hell out of this show, and maybe we ought to go get some of them. And yeah. Well, Laurie, apart from, ob- apart from the obvious connection uh, with The Wire, there are other, there are other links. You, obviously, there was your, your cameo. My, my brilliant, brilliant cameo. Your brilliant cameo. cameo on the show. But is it true that David, apart from appropriating some names of characters from some of your books, actually stole all your best jokes? Uh, David has stolen many of my best jokes, but that's more of a day-to-day thing. That's just more of our life together. The primary thing David stole was um, Omar's whistling of Farmer in the Dow. David was reading one of my books in, um, in manuscript. It hadn't even gone to my editor yet. Mm-hmm. And in it, there was a farmer in the Dell reference where the cheese stands the alone. Cheese stands alone. Next thing I know, all of a sudden, Omar is walking around singing "Farmer in the Dell." The thing that I remember, the thing that I the 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 direction I gave you that you did not take, which I was very proud of myself for, but you were talking about a scene where Stringer Bell is 
waiting to take the train to New York. And your stringer has this, I think this really touching desire to be conventionally successful. I think that's one of the most interesting things in the wire is that stringer bell hungers for success in a realm that turns out to be even more cutthroat and dishonest and treacherous, which is, of course, sort of Wall Street success. He wants to be Bernie Madoff. (laughs) Developers. Yeah, developers. And you were like talking about what kind of conversation should Stringer be having on the train platform with this obvious Wall Street type. And I, I was, again, really ahead of the curve on this. I said, you know what? I think Stringer Bell is so knowledgeable about money that he would want to talk about derivatives and what happened in Orange County when all those derivatives, you know, almost bankrupted the county. And David, David did not take my note on that. I still think it was a terrible, terrible mistake. Now, David, but, in subsequent series, you've moved away from Baltimore, uh, Show Me a Hero, New York, Treme, New Orleans, Deuce, your new show is set in New York. Are you going to go back to Baltimore? There's still stories you want to yeah, tell? Yeah, if, the if there's a story... Um, that, that ought to be told in Baltimore or in a Rust Belt city. I'd be happy to do it. Uh, love the crew that we worked with there. Would love to work there again. Um, still live there. Um, we've tended to follow. You know, uh, the first move away was Generation Kill. You know, we weren't we weren't going to film the Iraq War in West Baltimore. Um, there's not that much CGI in the world, um, and so we've sort of followed where the stories had to go. Tremay had to be in New Orleans and. Deuce has to be in New York, and, and um, uh, you know, sometimes it's as simple as what's in development that gets a green light, you know, because it's, yeah. um, in the TV business, you don't, you can't have just one bet down and you wait for the, the wheel to land on it. You got to do three or four things, and, and whatever the network says they want, they want. But you're still writing about Baltimore. Uh, Wild Lake is a real place, right? Wild Lake, yeah. It's set in, um, it's a neighborhood... It's a lake, it's a neighborhood, it's a school in a suburb about 25 minutes out of Baltimore. It was a planned community. And I am still writing about Baltimore, um, although my next book is set completely in a fictional town in Delaware with some trips to Baltimore on the side, and I'm back into it in in a historic sense for the next book because I can't write about the present right now. I think it's crazy to try to write about well, I, I, was going to talk, I was going to talk to you about that. I mean, the very strong sense in Wild Lake about what we want to remember, what we choose to remember. Um, and I just wondered to what, how nostalgic are you? How nostalgic are both of you? Are you nostalgic for a particular time, particular place? I don't think I'm a sentimental person. And I think, I actually, I actually think nostalgia, I think I've said at some point that, you know, nostalgia is, is the second biggest epidemic in Baltimore after um, syphilis. It's just... <laughs> Um, nostalgia is really damaging. But does it have to be sentimental? Does nostalgia have to be sentimental? I guess that's the connotation I bring to it because nostalgia to me is predicated on the idea that things used to be better. And in some ways we were just this afternoon having discussion about a time not that long ago when we think things were better. But for the most part, I think it's a really dangerous road to go down because your nostalgia is someone else's bad time. And I've told the story, but I don't think I can tell it too often. So much of my life as a novelist was shaped by the most random conversation in the Baltimore Sun newsroom by two of my colleagues, Mike Fletcher and Wiley Hall, are African-American, and they were talking about the Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, first African-American to serve on the Supreme Court in the United States, Grew up in Baltimore, 
had no affection for it because this whole idea of the white working class and the Polish women cleaning their marble steps on the weekend, I just remember Fletch saying to Wiley Hall one day, yeah, someone should ask uh, Thurgood Marshall how he felt about Baltimore. I don't think the waitresses called him hun. And that was such a lightning bolt moment for me that you can have this beloved hometown, this place, and these things that you want to celebrate. You know, in Baltimore, we want to celebrate that white ethnic heritage. But at what cost? At whose cost did that? And so um, I'm not, I'm, I'm nostalgic. I don't ever want to work at a newspaper again, even if they could reinvent the newspaper industry so it was what I knew. But man, I am so grateful that I got to work in a newspaper when it was fun. And that's where they broke the covenant. It used to be fun. We used to, at the evening sun, we used to actually get out a Ouija board and call up the ghost of H.L. Mencken after we put the final paper to bed and have wing parties. I mean, we hired, well, it's probably not politically correct anymore to note that we hired a male stripper for the... Um, 85-year-old medical writer who came and dressed as a surgeon. And these are things, we were allowed to have fun. And when they took the fun out, I was just done with it. But I, I do, I'm really, I have really great memories, but I'm not going to, again, there's always a cost. So mm-hmm. I always, when I look backwards, I'm always like, my great memory probably came at the cost of someone else's dignity. I don't know how to, a better way to put it. Well, I said, I said I wouldn't mention the, the M word again, but obviously as husband and wife working in, uh, linked areas and connected areas. I you said the N-word. No, <laughs> Where are we no, going, I said Mark? the M-word. <laughs> right. um, do, you, do you critique each other's work? Do you look at each other's work? Um, I used to read, I used to do a read on her manuscripts, mostly looking for just uh, sort of uh, uh, police procedure, if I, if I saw something where I could help or, or, or typos. You know, I was sort of the last read in. I think it took some of the fun out for Laura of just having me read as a reader. So we stopped that. He was a great editor, but I said I'd really rather have you as my fan. I mean, I think the most important contribution I've ever made to David's work was when I told him to make a certain uh, draft for his fantasy baseball team. So that was probably the most important thing I've ever done when I told you to draft Dustin Pedroia for a dollar and you went on to win Roto that year. That's right. That's 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 more important than anything I've ever brought to your work on the page. (laughs) So what's next for you both? David, we got got juice on the horizon. You notice he didn't follow that one up. (laughs) Because you mentioned baseball and my my eyes started to glaze over at that point. Yeah, for for a British audience, that was just a room clearer. That's the one that's like rounders in fancy dress, right? I got it. Um, so Juice, Juice is on the horizon. I know that, again, you've brought in crime writers, Megan Abbott, Lisa Lurch, George Pelicanos is involved again. So what can you tell us briefly about Juice? Uh, we're trying to ruin porn for everybody. Can, can you ruin porn? Uh, just watch. He's, watch making, and learn. he's making a good run at it. Watch and learn. Uh, it's about the, the point in American society, at least when... Uh, it came out from under the counter. It came out from the paper bag and became street legal. And uh, happened in sort of midtown New York around 42nd Street. And, and uh, not only transformed that environment, but basically transformed uh, the cultural landscape. I mean, you know, this is now a billion-dollar industry. But more than that, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but we don't even sell a bottle of beer without you know, without porn at this point. And, and I don't mean literal porn, but I do mean, you know, the culture uh, yeah. of, you know, you, you, there's, you know, you can have porn without 
nudity at this point. Right. And, 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 and Madison Avenue has pretty much figured out how to do that. Well, this was the moment where um, Americans not only started um, acquiring it legally and, and, uh, and, and on a sort of pure across-the-culture basis, but it's the point at which we, we started uh, reconfiguring the imagery of, of, of sexuality with, you know, replete with misogyny and, and everything else in it. And uh, in some ways, it's weirdly innocent to look back at 1971-72 when the story begins uh, based on the culture we have now. But, um, you know, for the people who were there and were pioneers, it was... Uh, you know, strange days. And when so, are we going to get the juice on UK TV screens? I don't know. If you're getting them on the same time as uh, as HBO, it'll be uh, September. But okay. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I should probably know if it's Sky or... <laughs> you should probably should, know. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, I should probably know. It's probably my job to do podcasts and okay. know exactly, but I... I so while David I has been up. investigating the world of porn, you've got a children's book coming out, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! That was... That was the best transition ever. I do, and I, I don't have a publication date set yet, but it's called Liza Jane and the Dragon, and it grew out of a conversation we had about 10 days after Trump's inauguration when our daughter, who was six at the time, said, I don't understand why Donald Trump is president, and I decided to be super empathetic, super you know, rational. I said, well, you need to understand that there were voters in the United States. I don't necessarily agree with them, but they were frustrated, they were angry, and they thought that no one ever listened to them. And our daughter said, hey, that's just like me. <laughs> and we, I, we started spinning this tale over dinner about what happens when a girl fires her parents and hires a dragon to serve as mom and dad. And the dragon's response to everything is to set it on fire, and like and, and when and when castigated, the dragon says, well, "But I'm a dragon. This is what I do." And it's really sort of an allegory about professionalism. I covered politics for a long time, and I I think I have more respect for politicians than most people. I, there's a lot of it that is truly thankless, and it is a necessary job in our society. So that was, yeah. So I have the children's book coming out and I have a crime novel coming out in winter of 2018 called Sunburn. Very, it's a bit of a change of pace. It's, it's a kind of lean, mean sort of updating of the postman always rings twice. Couldn't you call it the girl with sunburn? At least get on that that train a bit late. Sunburn tattoo. The The, sunburn tattoo. Um, Well, now, as promised, in each episode, we ask our guests to bring their recommendations for a good read and a good watch. Laura, let's start with you. What have you read recently that we can recommend to our listeners? I'm still in the middle of it, and I've been boring David to tears with it. I'm reading a book called Grocery by Michael Rollman, which is the history of the American supermarket, and it's fascinating. It's a it, it touches on so many aspects of American life. And there's so much, it, you learn so much history and so much about economics and food culture. And I'm crazy about it. And I'm watching, I love Silicon Valley. Right. I really do. Um, I, I, I think it just has this real human core to it that is kind of warm and forgiving. And so I'm back there every week for it. And what about you, David? What have you read recently that you can recommend? Uh, I'm reading a book um, now called Labyrinth by Taylor Branch. Um, 
I I I tried and failed to get uh, Taylor's monumental uh, trilogy about the civil rights years um, made into a miniseries uh, by HBO, and um, I felt so guilty about it that when he sent me another book, an earlier book that he written about the, I don't know if this will uh, anybody will remember, but the murder of Orlando Letelier, who was blown up in a car in Washington, he was uh, the former ambassador. Uh, from Chile to the United States, and he was an opponent of Pinochet. And so this would have been in those years after the American government had, uh, you know, sort of fomented that coup against democracy in Chile in the, in the mid-'70s. And he, it, was a, it was a straight political murder. He was blown up in a car with a, with a, with a young woman who was his, um, his aide, uh, who was working with him at the time. And... Uh, it, the book is really interesting to me because at a point at which we're all confronting terrorism as a, as a political dynamic and as, as something that is, is shaping the way governments act and, and react, um, this was a moment in which FBI agents and D.C. homicide detectives and prosecutors built a, built a criminal case and found the killers and put them in jail as a matter of criminal justice rather right. than drones and wars and 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 you know indiscriminate casualties on both sides rather than escalating without precision uh they used the methodology of solving a crime to actually do the right thing because this and is labyrinth that's that labyrinth is, that is the name of the book yeah it's 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 it's, it's an older book and you, you probably your listeners are gonna have to struggle to find it but it's something that i would love to make into a uh, a mini series if possible if, if only because i uh Boy, I owe Taylor one. Okay, well, talking of television, what have you what have you watched recently that you could recommend? Uh, I don't watch that much series television. I, I, I'm a, it's sort of embarrassing, but you know, you can recommend anything. It can be a quiz show, any, anything that takes uh, well, your fancy. Well, Laura, Laura, Laura turned me on to a show that I really admire the writing, so I will I'll credit Laura with this. But there's a Canadian show called Slings and Arrows that was on probably about years ago. Years now. ago, you know, but you can still find it. Uh, it's about a Shakespeare Shakespearean repertory company in Toronto. Toronto? No, it's a, it's it's based on um, the Stratford Festival, which is in a smaller town. That's it. it's in Ontario. a very small town. Ontario? Yeah, I think so. Okay. It's in a, in a right, small town. I got that town. part wrong. Um, but it's there's three seasons, and each of them are very meta in terms of you know it, whether it's Lear or Macbeth or Hamlet. Um, what's going on? in the play is actually going on in the repertory company. That's okay. how clever the writing is. And it, it gives you envy. To, to If you're a writer, you're, you're seeing what they did uh, to make this thing work on, on, on so many levels. Okay, uh, so that's Slings and Arrows. Slings and Arrows. Seek it out, listeners. And that's about it for this episode of A Stab in the Dark. What have we learned in this episode? Well, we've learned that Laura Lippman is responsible for the success of David Simon's fantasy baseball team and that David <laughs> Simon is related to Sarah Paretsky. We'll be back again next time with more fantastic names from the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama. But in the meantime, you can find out more about A Stab in the Dark at uktv.co.uk slash A Stab in the Dark or get in touch with us on Twitter, hashtag A Stab in the Dark. Plus... Don't forget to review us on your podcast app. Your feedback really does make a difference. So if you like the show, rate and review us. If you don't, well, you know, it's a free country, I suppose, just about. But do remember, I am very easily offended. I know people and I will hunt you down. And just a quick reminder, you can watch the best crime drama every day on UK TV channels Alibi and Drama. So with that, it's a huge thank you to my very special guests, Laura Lippman and David Simon. And thanks to our producers, Paul Hirons, Joel Porter and John Lemon. My name's Mark Billingham and thanks for listening. <laughs>